What's the address of the emergency? Hey, we're up on the path. Okay, what's going on? Up on the path, up on shivers, someone's ran into a wire laceration on the neck. Some blood on you don't have in a minute. I don't know. You don't have to don't ski think... out. If you can't, we're going to go ahead and send somebody. Oh, I don't think we can ski out. Can you please send help? Okay. It was really just Matt and I right then, and that's when I looked down and I saw the bleeding, and I was just like, oh, my God, this guy's going to die in my arms, and it's us two out here on Teton Pass, and I can see these cars driving by. Like, you're not so far away from civilization, yet you are. I'm Matt Hansen, and you're listening to The Fine Line, real stories of adventure, risk, and rescue in the Jackson Hole backcountry. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, a project of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation to eliminate fatalities and serious injuries in the Tetons. During the release of this episode, Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation is running its annual Heli Yes fundraiser, which seeks community support to help maintain emergency rescue helicopter service in Teton County. As we continue to see record visitation to our surrounding public lands, the helicopter has become an increasingly important life-saving tool for Teton County Search and Rescue but the volunteers can't do it without your help. You can support the volunteers and the rescue helicopter program by going to tetoncountysar.org slash heli hyphen yes. That's heli hyphen yes. This episode of The Fine Line is brought to you by Roadhouse Brewing Company, supporting backcountry safety and the Jackson Hole community since 2012. Located at the heart of the Tetons, Roadhouse Brewing Company embodies the authentic spirit of the West, where your word is your honor, quality is your craft, and adventure is rooted in your soul. For more information on Roadhouse and its town square pub and eatery, visit roadhousebrewery.com. We're going to start off by going all the way back to 1937 at Christmas time. That year, the Dartmouth Outing Club came to ski in Jackson Hole on their way to a race in Sun Valley. A top collegiate program, the Dartmouth Club included such talented skiers as Dick Durrance and the brothers Howard and Warren Shivers. During the week they spent in Jackson, the team explored the Tetons on skis and put on an exhibition on Teton Pass for the locals. A solemn course was set up on Telemark Hill, right next to the top of the pass. A crowd gathered to watch, and even back then, they did truck shuttles to avoid traffic congestion at the top. An old newspaper clipping from the Jacksonville Courier says this about the Dartmouth skiers. Quote, They were unanimous in their praise of skiing conditions and the scenery. When it was suggested that they should see the valley in the summer, loud boos greeted the proposal. One gathered from their conversation that traveling about the mountains on skis was much easier and far faster than on foot or horseback, to say nothing of the scenic views never seen by summer tourists. Unquote. Dick Durrance would go on to be one of the most influential skiers of the 20th century, helping to develop Alta Skiria in Utah and Aspen, Colorado. Durrance and the Shivers brothers were eventually named to the U.S. Ski Hall of Fame. Here locally, the Shivers' name is celebrated as one of the most popular runs of Teton Pass, Shivers Ridge. Just one ridge to the south from the top of the pass and right next to Telemark Hill or Telly Bowl, Shivers is known as an entry-level backcountry run for its ease of access, as well as a really fun, quick hit that can easily be lapped by doing car shuttles from the trailhead at the bottom of the pass. Actually, that's the first backcountry run I took my kid on, and uh, it's nice because you can boot pack up to the up to the top. You don't need skins, um, or really, 
know, a touring setup. You can do it with your resort skis. That's Anthony Stevens. He grew up in Jackson and has been a TC SAR volunteer since 2015 and is the team's current training director. Shivers Ridge proper is kind of a spine and it, it drops off on both sides and um, it's usually beautiful, uh, good open powder lines. You kind of mix in and out of the trees. And then as you go down, it kind of drops you onto these, as what my kid refers to as animal trails. And uh, you kind of follow these little animal trails, these luge runs out to the old pass road and then take the old pass road down to the parking lot. But as we'll hear in this episode, just because Shivers is easy to get to and people have been skiing it for about 100 years doesn't mean that it can't be dangerous. Remember the old rule. If it's steep enough to ride, it's steep enough to slide. And Shivers also contains man-made infrastructure, such as power lines and cables, that you may not always expect to find on a backcountry run. On January 23rd of this year, Matt Bamback, a 29-year-old skier, found this out the hard way. That morning, he gathered on the pass with a bunch of friends to celebrate his roommate's birthday. It was supposed to be a fun day of party skiing. But on their very first run, it all came crashing down when he sustained a life-threatening injury about halfway down Shivers Ridge. Despite how close he was to the road, it presented some very real challenges for his companions, as well as the response from Teton County Search and Rescue. So we had planned to meet up with a fairly large crew, certainly for a backcountry day. So we were going shivers to keep it light, um, but about 10 people. And yeah, met up there late morning, you know, kind of went through all the standard backpack packing and talking about a route kind of beforehand at home and uh, yeah, we weren't even putting skins on, just booted up to the top of the ridge, and we we're going to head down and then get a beer at the stagecoach. That was the plan. So yeah, my name's Matt Bamback. Uh, I live over in Fox Creek between Victor and Driggs in Teton Valley. I work as a cook right now and farmer as well. Done some ecology stuff in the past. Just an all-around lover of the mountains and science and play in all regards. I used to live over in Jackson, so I had one good freshman year experience over at the village. Yeah, I'm looking to make a home in the Tetons, get into the backcountry a lot more. Had been out a fair amount already this winter, about a dozen tours or so leading up to it and ski at Targhee. Well, it was chilly, but not too cold. You know, we were cold in the parking lot getting ready and fairly breezy, but, you know, a nice day. It was sunny and maybe some clouds mixed from what I can remember. And yeah, we all kind of just got together at the top and started our way down in groups, you know, usually kind of a pair, picked buddies and... I think there was maybe one group of three if we had an odd number. But I wasn't first. I was we, we were kind of alternating at each stop, but generally skiing, you know, tracked up, but still good soft pockets of snow. And kind of coming down, as they said, kind of in and out of the trees. It's really nice turns. It is fairly steep as the ridge falls off, so trying to kind of stay high on that. And coming down right before my crash, I was the second to last group to go down. So there was one pair behind me. Said goodbye to Jules and Riley, uh, the last two folks, and my partner Alex had already gone down, and there were just these two tight trees kind of sat behind a little roller. You'd see around the left side of that, and it looked like a nice transition to land on. So my plan was to jump through the two trees, and I successfully did that. And on the other side, there's this wire draped across the hill. So strung from my left side over to up above to the right um, at a diagonal and didn't quite have time to 
curse or anything like that. I just, I fell, I tried to limbo the things, fell back onto my tails and first hit the wire in the top of my shin and, and it caught me under my jaw. So kind of really caught me and spun me and I think I ragdolled a couple times and don't know if I blacked out for that, but definitely saw stars and heard the ringing and that type of thing. And before I knew it, I was in head chin on my backpack with Jules holding support on my throat. Um, and Riley had skied down to get the others. I met Matt that day, actually. We were out there for our buddy's birthday. So there's just a group of about 12 of us. Honestly, well, I didn't even meet like the whole group, so I kind of just met Matt after the fact when I was holding pressure on his neck and just we kind of introduced ourselves then during that moment. So my name's Jules Bell. I am a vet tech. I work at Jackson Animal Hospital. I live in Wilson, Wyoming. I've been here for almost four years in the valley. I'm from Ohio originally. Yes, from Cleveland. I came here for an internship and then I got offered a position. So I just ended up staying. So the mountains were kind of just a cherry on top too. My first time in the backcountry, I was doing my AVI course and I was on 25 short and my friend had torn her ACL, so she had to get short-lined off of that. So my first experience in backcountry was, the, it involved a helicopter. And then um, that was more or less my second time in the backcountry, um, up on the pass. So I'd gone up snowking a couple times, but that doesn't count. Yeah, so that was my second time, and it also involved a helicopter. A snowboarder, Bell also says she doesn't really like going to the backcountry that much. The risk versus reward doesn't just weigh out for me. I'm... Really, I like chairlifts at the village. They work out for me. Yeah, so I just don't have very much experience back there. I've had some friends that have experienced some really horrible things, so I've kind of just wanted to avoid that. Never want to put myself in a situation where I have to save someone's life because I don't feel like, or dig someone out of something, because I don't feel like I can do that, and I'm just not comfortable with a beacon. So I don't really go in the backcountry too often. It was actually super sunny. It was really nice, but I was not in, I just didn't want to be there because I don't like, uh, you know, I was just already spooked to begin with, even though it was like a sunny day and I was like, I don't know how to work my beacon. What if an avalanche happens? My beacon's a fossil. It's so old. And everyone was like, you know, it hasn't snowed in months, so it's not going to be an avalanche. So I didn't really, couldn't use that excuse. But it was very sunny. It was very, it was a gorgeous day. So I skinned up the back with my boyfriend and everyone else had boot packed up, which ended up being a situation because no one else had their skins to get back up to us in a timely manner. Yeah, we're all just like talking about where we're going to go. And like I was just pulling up the back of the group and everyone was going hooting and hollering, having a great time. I mean, the snow was like hard as rock, but we're still having a good time. Everyone's going and I'm, I watch Matt jump through these trees and then I see him hit the wire and I just see the wire shake, you know, and I just figured that he had ended up yard sailing, you know, nothing too substantial happened. Then when I got up to him and I saw him, that's when I knew something was wrong. It was so quick that awesome feeling of going through the two trees and landing and then immediately even before I landed seeing this and then pretty much just having all these crazy uh, sound and uh, flying through the air and then waking up. I got closer to him and he had ended up spitting a bunch of blood on my face and I could see it through my goggles and then he had spit a tooth out at me and then that's when I really thought you know like he's probably broken his face maybe he's bleeding out and so I reached into my bag to grab something. All I had was like a Gore-Tex coat, so that wasn't going to work. So luckily my boyfriend had a pair of socks. So we tied them in a knot and just started applying pressure. And the next thing I knew, I had my phone out and was calling 911. And I told Riley to go down the hill and to get everyone else to get some help because obviously we needed help. 
At that point, Matt was kind of going in and out of it, and I was just trying to stay calm for him, you know, because I really thought that this was a, like a life-threatening situation and this might be his last minutes. Looked down right past his neck, and there was just so much blood pulling out by his shoulder. I really thought that he maybe hit his carotid or his jugular or something and that this was going to be it. Yeah, when I came to a stop, I actually I couldn't figure out why I was being held still. And I immediately was able to move my fingers and toes without kind of worrying if I could move them. So I never had that kind of shock. I knew my throat hurt a lot. You know, I'd have a huge gash all the way across it underneath my jawline, but I couldn't tell at the time. So once I realized I was, you know, being rescued and had gone down really hard, I tried to just give into it and just focus on my breathing pretty much. I wasn't sure how bad I was bleeding, you know, how injured I was at that point. So. I knew my jaw was swollen and probably broken. Yeah, I didn't even feel, I had a pretty big cut at the top of my shin, like I said, and that was down to the bone and fascia, I think, and couldn't even really feel that until y'all got there pretty much, I think. Maybe they had found it, my guys and my buddy group. I knew I got my bell rung pretty good. <laughs> yeah, and I remember he was just saying, like, that really hurts, and I was just like, yeah, assuming it hurts because you think you broke your face because, you know, you spit a tooth out, so... Yeah, I felt bad. Yeah, I just had to like keep applying pressure, and luckily the socks worked. And then by the time everyone else got up there, someone had a vest or something, or some you know some fabric material that's not Gore-Tex, because everyone had like a lot of Gore-Tex, and that doesn't really absorb much. When Riley handed me the socks, I'd somehow gotten my phone out, and by that point, I was already calling nine one one. Nine one one. What's the address? Of the emergency. Mm-hmm. Hey, we're hey. up on the path. Okay, what's going on? Up on the pass, up on shivers, someone's ran into a wire laceration on the neck. Okay, where exactly on the pass are you? Off the trail or um, on the road? We're, up, we're on the hill. We're skiing. It's like the first little ridge right next to Telemark Bowl. People call it shivers. Our plan shivers. is to ski down to Trail Creek to the road. What's your um, name? Who am I talking to? You're talking, this is Jules Bell, the patient. He's Matt Bambach, B-A-M-B-A-C-H. Are you guys are with the patient now? Yep, we're up on the is path. Can you please send the ambulance up the path? Yes, where exactly now. are you guys going to ski out to? That is the thing. I, we will try to get a ski out super lightheaded. We have a cut on the neck. There's okay. some blood out. You don't, have, in a minute. I don't know. you don't have to don't ski think, out. If you can't, we're going to go ahead and send somebody. I don't think we can ski out. Can you please send help? Okay, yes, definitely we're sending help. Okay, let them know help's on the way. Help's on the way. I'm holding pressure on the wound. I'm not going to lift it up again. There's a bit of blood. Okay. Oh, damn, I'm just chewing my teeth, Brad. You're right. Uh, You're doing okay. Oh, good. You're going to be good, baby. Don't worry. And immediately when she answers, I was just like, I need a helicopter on shivers. And I couldn't believe I was asking for a helicopter. And so she she understood that. And then she was asking, you know, what happened, blah, blah, blah. And then my phone actually glitched out and turned off. And so I had to end up. I think I just, like, threw my phone. I don't even know. And so I ended up having to search Matt for his phone because he, like, didn't know where it was. And then I had to find his phone, get it out, and then redial 911. And the lady had thought he had died or something happened because I just, you know, hung up. And so finally I got her back online. And then I was asking her, I was like, you know, why can't I hear the helicopter? Why don't I see an ambulance on the pass? You know, obviously I would just spoken to her, like, four minutes ago. So she was like, yeah, no one's there yet. But And then she was like, all right, well... Call me if, like, you know, the circumstances change. It was really just Matt and I right then, and that's when I looked down and I saw the bleeding. Oh, my God, this guy's going to die in my arms, and it's us two out here. 
on Teton Pass and I can see these cars, you know, driving by. Like, you're not so far away from civilization, yet you are. Kind of the initial information we had was just that somebody had crashed on shivers and had a neck laceration, and they described it as, as bleeding but not not spurting. Um, and so my name's Casey Bess, and I've been on Search and Rescue for about seven years. I uh, grew up down in the desert near St. George, Utah. Knew that it was an emergency and, and were able to page the team right away. And being Sunday, that's the day that everybody tends to be out and playing and doing what everybody in Jackson does. And so when we got to the, the hangar, we had a few folks there already and, and started getting things going. And we're waiting for some folks, to, additional folks to come uh, that, that were on the short haul team. Anthony uh, lives at the base of the pass, and so he volunteered to go up to the scene and be kind of LZ manager and, and get ready for um, what we needed there. I initially was the incident commander. After a few minutes, was decided that because of the nature of the injury, we should get moving faster. So I handed that off to someone else and um, transitioned to be a short hauler. Uh, we had a spotter there and decided to fly up and we were in the air not too long and were able to get up to the pass quickly just because of the location of the hangar to the pass. Uh, we flew over and there's there's quite a few wires in the area and so we kind of did a little reconnaissance fly around and then came down to the scene where we could see uh, Matt and his party. They had uh, skis crossed up uphill from him and kind of were taking care of the scene that way and because we knew that He'd hit a wire. We were being really cautious of what was around and uh, took a few minutes on the approach to come in and, and make sure that we didn't fly the helicopter into any wires. So it's a guy wire uh, to help support the power power pole there. And so it goes from near the top, probably 40 feet up, um, and it comes down at about a 45-degree angle to the ground. And it's probably, probably an inch in diameter or so. Is that about right? Yeah, I'll bet it's a little bit bigger than that. It's probably two or three inches. I mean, it's it's pretty substantial. We had just started our step program where we're able to kind of just tow in and, and get out of the ship. And so we determined that that was going to be the fastest way to get somebody on scene. And so we came in just below the party and it was quite interesting. They had a, a stick up with a, a coat tied to it that was the uh, kind of like a, a wind flag. So yeah, we just came in nice and slow. I was surprised how, how close and how comfortable Steve was getting us right to where we wanted to be. was able to get out. Tim, uh, who was the spotter, stayed with the ship. Um, I grabbed the medical supplies, and they took off, and then I uh, was a short hop up to, to where Matt was. He had great care from his party, and they were able to come down and help get some of that medical gear up to him. So the ship flew away and went over to the lower pass parking lot uh, where Anthony was. I kind of was able to jump in and do some care on Matt. Teton County Search and Rescue has been using the short haul rescue technique since 2006. In this operation, one or two people, and sometimes up to three, are suspended on a rope below the helicopter. Short haul is often deployed in areas that make ground-based rescues difficult, such as steep, unforgiving terrain, or when medical emergencies demand a quick evacuation. The volunteers must train for this all the time. At least twice a month, and often more, in order to keep themselves and their patients safe during a short haul. So we typically uh, weigh up a lot of different variables. Uh, like you just mentioned, we, we look at the, the nature of the injury um, and the urgency, uh, the amount of daylight we have left, 
and the technical location and how long we think it would take to get them out of there if we did it on foot or on snowmobile or, you know, whatever the given situation is. So just kind of a multifaceted decision. And a few of us put our heads together and, and say, okay, this seems like it'd be a, a good candidate for a short haul mission. We always send a backup team with it with that as well. So we'll say, okay, short haul is going to be the primary approach here. And we'll have a backup ski team that will get ready to go as well. So it takes a, a minute to go through. We have a GAR, uh, which is a green, amber, red scale that we run through with the helicopter and put a numerical value with a variety of things like leadership, team fitness, uh, weather, all, all those different things that come into it. If it's in the green, then we're saying, okay, this is good. Is everybody okay to fly? Then we are able to take off. With that, though, it, it does take a, a, a minute to kind of go through that, and we try not to get let urgency drive the mission. And so a lot of times we're leaving about the same time as the ground, the backup team. So in this case, we actually launched and had intended to short haul in, but because of the situation, we were able to, to land and um, get somebody on scene a lot quicker um, rather than landing away, rigging for short haul, and then coming back in and doing it that way. So it worked out really well. For the most part, everything that we do on SAR, we train team-wide. There's just a couple of, of kind of specialized groups, and short haul being one of them. It starts off with an application process. I mean, we look at, you know, their medical credentials, their availability, you know, do they have avalanche certs or skills, you know, how are they in the backcountry? As you can imagine, we can get inserted into pretty technical terrain, and there's no guarantee that the ship is going to come back for you. So you need to be able to, to have good navigation skills and be able to get yourself out. So we, we kind of recruit for that. And once, uh, once a team member is selected for the team, um, they go through kind of their initial training where, you know, they will always fly with a, a seasoned short hauler and they'll practice hooking and unhooking from the rope. They'll practice their comms with the ship and they'll go through this for a while. It just depends on that person's individual availability and how many times they fly. Once they get to a point where we feel like they are ready to fly solo on a training mission, they will run a they'll run a solo flight where they'll do all the hooking and the comms and be inserted and then uh, extracted. And if they can do that with no errors, yeah, they get kind of that blessing to, to become operational. It usually takes about a season before they they get that kind of blessing or check off to be uh, an operational short haul team member. I think right now there's 14 short haulers on our team out of, uh, out of 44. One of the fastest ways to insert a rescuer on scene is with what's called a step or toe-in. Previous to this incident, TC SAR volunteers had been practicing the step technique with pilot Steve Wilson. So there's a variety of different techniques that are involved in that. Um, one of them is, is a toe-in, and so basically the front part of the ship is on the slope. Got the front parts of the skids and the nose are touching the snow, and the back of the skids and the tail are elevated off of the slope. And so that allows you to be able to basically land, in a sense, um, and, and have somebody step off the ship into the snow. There's other techniques like um, a hover exit or a hover entry that are also part of those techniques that we have been practicing. So what we've been doing up to this point is, is if it's in more technical area, we scout out the scene and then we fly away to a, a flat area, land the ship, and rig the, the rope up underneath. From there, we'll pick up the rescuers 
and deposit them to the the scene and at that point they can start to give care so there's a few more minutes involved in that setup this allows us to cut off five ten minutes of of prep time and a lot of times in the way it worked with matt the other day was we were able to get on scene go away rig the ship and while they were rigging the ship up um, in that amount of time we were able to get patient care on matt get him ready to go and then when they came back with anthony on the the end of the short haul line he was able to land pick up matt with a much shorter duration in between so it, it worked out really quite well i was i liked it i got out and hiked up to matt after the ship was uh, flew away and initially his friend jules i believe she was holding pressure on his neck with a kind of an improvised bandage at this point bell had been applying pressure to bamback's neck for roughly 45 minutes everyone had first aid kits to like hey let, let's put this gauze in it let's wrap it up and i was just looking at him like you have no idea what's underneath here. I'm absolutely not taking pressure off this. There's no way like, the next person that's going to see this is going to be the search and rescue. Talked to everybody on, you know, there was around. It was great. They had had him packaged into a, uh, like a bivy sack, like an emergency bivy sack. He was off the snow getting medical care. And they'd benched out some areas for equipment to go and really well-organized party as far as that goes. And so that made my job really easy. I was able to come in and do a quick assessment on Matt and just talk to him, could tell that he was breathing well and seemed to be with it. And so at that point, kind of took a breath and pulled out medical supplies. And we were able to kind of change the improvised dressing out to a, some gauze and, and a wrap. Um, because it was right on his, his neck, it's a little tricky because I didn't want to wrap it too tight and interfere with his breathing. But the pressure they'd been putting on it had pretty much stopped the, the bleeding at that point. So switching it over it was pretty straightforward wound care. Did a quick assessment on his neck to see if he had any pain on, on uh, or tenderness on his, on his neck. Didn't seem to at the time. And so we had him set up, um, got his backpack off. And then had had his friends help move him around a little bit and just kind of get ready. We we left him in a seated position on the on the slope. It worked out quite well. It seemed like it was pretty comfortable. There was just a, a minute that we were kind of had taken care of his neck. Started looking at uh, you know is there any other injuries? His buddies had knew that he had something going on on his leg, and so we pulled his pants up rather than cut him off, and uh, we were able to put a small bandage on that. But yeah, it was a pretty good gash on his kind of just below his knee. It went relatively smoothly and like I said I, I think a lot of that had to do with how prepared his party was and how good of care he had at that point um, rather than just laying in the snow and freezing and not getting getting good medical care so that really made a difference. As Casey said he started off as the incident commander so as we jumped off the the board call and made the decision to page the the short haul team um, as I was coming out of my neighborhood which Casey said is at the base of the pass I uh called him and, and asked him if he wanted me to go up to the pass and secure an LZ because um, we generally bring patients to the that lower lot and that's where we have them meet the ambulance. And he said, yeah, that would be great. Uh, and so I went up to the, to the lot and uh, as I pulled in, I actually ran into Liz King who works for the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation and I asked her to help me, uh, you know, kind of cordon off the parking lot and just give people a heads up that we were going to be bringing a, a helicopter in here to to rig it, just to give them a heads up and to secure all the mile markers and things like that so they didn't blow into the rotor disc. As I got up there and we started to do that, Casey called and asked if I had all my short haul gear. And I said, yes. And he's like, great. 
we don't have anybody here that can uh, be a second. So, you know, gear up and we'll pick you up up there. So another team member show, showed up who was not a short hauler. And so he took over managing the LZ and uh, I geared up, got ready to be inserted to help Casey out. Uh, and it was pretty wild, actually, as, as Casey said, uh, we, we were doing this new technique and I was watching from the lower parking lot as uh, Steve and, and the ship did their tow in and we could see that kind of the makeshift windsock that you guys had created. And <laughs> uh, from my position, it looked like something that was going to blow into the rotor disc. And so I remember, you know, asking Steve if he saw that and if it was secure. And yeah, you guys did an excellent job at securing that landing site. So we watched Casey get out and then Steve lifted off and came over and landed on the snowbank just kind of to the southwest of the lower lot. The spotter, Tim Seo Carlin, jumped out and uh, we started rigging the ship for, for short haul, which put a Y lanyard on underneath and then attached the rope to that. Casey came over the radio and asked, asked if I should bring the, the Bowman bag in, which is uh, this bag that we put a vacuum mattress into so we can lay the, the patient in kind of a laying down position or a supine position. And so I, I said, well, let's let's just take a look till we what it looks like when we get over there. And so the ship picked up and picked me up and inserted me onto the the platform that they had made. And the first thing that came across my mind was how amazingly dialed the crew was that was there. Like Casey said, there was a bench carved out and all our medical gear was sitting there and skis were all out of the way and and they were kind of stepped away from the rope. Um, One thing that we have have a fear of is that uh, people are always – you know, helpful and willing to help out by, you know, grabbing the rope and unhooking or whatever. And we usually ask people to stay away from the, the short haul line. We prefer to do it ourselves. That way nobody gets entangled. And, uh, but everybody kept such a, a great distance and we unhooked and Steve took off with the rope and turned around and asked Casey what he needed. And at that point he had Matt kind of prepped and ready to go. We needed to put the screamer suit on and we opted to go with that instead of lying him down just because of the nature of the injuries. But I needed to ask the pilot if we could fly with three of us uh, so that Casey could continue to support uh, Matt's neck and hold open the screamer suit so it didn't directly lay on his, his injury while I did all the comms and the, and the hooking of the rope. And Steve said, yeah, we had plenty of power, so we opted to go with that. So we got Matt kind of packaged up in the, in the screamer suit and got him ready to go. And I remember before we started call the ship in, I was like, oh yeah, he's got a lot of articles of clothing on him in this uh, rescue bivy. And I was like, the first thing that's going to happen is we're going to pick up and all that stuff's going to scatter all over the, the valley. So we, we were quickly getting that stuff off him and handing it off to his, his buddies. As the ship came in, we grabbed the hook and hooked the three of us up. And I noticed out of the corner of my eye, a couple of yellow jackets, our other team members who had... Uh, skied in across the top and come down Brooke and and Steve Worm they were there to assist in case this didn't go as as we were planning uh, yeah it was super smooth and and Matt was a great patient we were able to pick him up and fly him over to that lower lot and I remember the landing being sort of interesting we were trying to figure out well how could we best support him as we were bringing him to the ground and Casey and I had a quick conversation in the air and it really he just kind of laid down on top of Casey um, and sort of supported him to the ground and uh, I unhooked us from the rope and the, and the pilot took off and we were able to unhook all of our gear and transfer him to the ambulance. It was super smooth as, as short holes go. 
and I give a lot of that credit to the crew that he was with. They, they really did a great job. And also, um, you know, Casey being super dialed and, and having all his gear and being ready to help out. Yeah. So I had, um, I had a lot of coats and hats and been wrapped up pretty nicely and was definitely feeling could kind of support my body weight somewhat with my feet uh, in the position I was in. So I was feeling pretty comfortable and yeah, I think I started to become a bit more aware of like, okay, you know, our party split up. Some people went down and some people stayed with me and saw the rescue through and, you know, told me that there's a helicopter coming and I could hear him coming up the canyon, which was pretty crazy. I was just in fully in the mode of what do I need to do to not hurt myself anymore or make this a more challenging job for, <laughs> for any of y'all. Definitely feel like my friends did an excellent job and, you know, be forever grateful for that, you know, for being out with good people. Just that lesson in, a, in and of itself, I think, is one of the main takeaways from this. Yeah, it was pretty surreal to have, because I didn't realize how technical the uh, helicopter pickup would have been just with the wire and where we were on the slope and trees and we had dogs running around, you know, the whole gambit. To me, it was just a pretty crazy look at the pass we spun around a couple times in the air i think as we were dangling and yeah i was i was being supported by each of y'all in the way up it was something that kind of hope i don't have to experience again but for what it was it was quite pleasant <laughs> yeah very unique experience for sure that pilot could do what he did i don't know how he did that but to nose into there and have had they shortlined him, it would have taken a lot longer. Shortlined Casey in rather than nosing in and have him jump out and like stabilize him. So that was pretty freaking cool. I didn't what didn't see it because I was covering Matt because you know there was a lot of turbulence on the ground. But I picture it like him jumping out with a cape, just shooting out. That's <laughs> pretty good. Yeah. So then we had a ski out, which was um, yeah, very long ski. Even though it's like the shortest run ever. And then it kind of hit me, and I was. I was in shock because I just really thought he was going to die. And so I was just trying to process that. But then he didn't. So, you know, there was nothing to dwell on. You know, the what ifs, you know, will really get your mind going. So just try not to think about that. Once he got to the ambulance, I knew, you know, everything was going to be okay. So, yeah, everyone was like, you need to get some sugar. You need to get some sugar. And I was like, yeah, I'm going straight to the coach for a margarita. I will get plenty of sugar party was over so we didn't end up going to the village or do anything like that we kind of hung it up but yeah so straight to the coach <laughs> i went back and skied shivers i think i've done it twice now yeah that's my extent of i think backcountry skiing i might maybe one day i'd like to go skiing again with matt in on you know on the pass one day that'd be fun but other than that i think i'm i think i'm good thought i'd be able to snowboard i just didn't want to get anxiety about snowboarding it was kind of because it was kind of like a weird like final destination accident, you know, or just a super freak accident. And so I actually found like I was skiing in the resort and I already I was like having anxiety snowboarding, you know, seeing if something was going to happen. I kind of just went back there just to, it was just something I needed to do. I think a take home for me that I always remember when I, you know, like I said, I took my kid on that run and it's always what do I have in my pack? Right. Mm -hmm. And it's usually uh, enough to stay warm and something to at least uh, stop major bleeds and kind of stabilize somebody. And I, you know, every time I go out, I'm like, oh, it's just a quick lap. But as you as you can see, right, like it's a quick lap, but it's really it's further away than you think in terms of getting out when you're when you're unable. So something to think about. 
first I hit the top of my shin, which, you know, it was less than an inch below the start of your knee and all that tendon nest in there, uh, just about the thickest part of that bone. So fortunately that didn't break, but it's a pretty good gash and they stitched that up at the hospital in Jackson. That's healing up pretty well. And then, yeah, big laceration across my neck, throat, 60 plus stitches under there. And they went back through that same cut to perform my jaw reconstruction, which that was another one was uh, the whole bottom right side of my jaw broke from the bottom up. So fortunately, it didn't break all the way through to the line where my teeth are, which is why they were able to not have to wire it shut. And the last one is two fractures in my C1 and 2, respectively. Some of the ligament, I understand, was damaged or ripped off from the force of the crash on those. So that was, I, I know a little bit about human anatomy and medical science, but I guess I wasn't as freaked out about having walked away, relatively speaking, from an upper spinal injury. I'm very, very lucky for that, it sounds like. I was scolded for having a bit of maybe a rushed first shower after my accident. Probably should have waited a couple more days to swap the brace out, but yeah. So leg and neck and head injuries. How close was the laceration on your neck to your artery? Um, so my, f my friend said that they could see my carotid artery through the cut. It finished just under the hinge point in my jaw, and then that was the deepest part of the cut as well. And I guess they could see the artery there, so pretty big break on that front as well, not, not rupturing that. Uh, could have been a very different situation from what I understand. It's funny to listen to you describe your injuries in a very um, calm, quiet manner and saying like, you know, it's, you know, it's sort of an average day skiing where our, our <laughs> medical director, Dr. Wheeler, is the one who stitched up your your, oh, okay, your neck cool. and your, your knee. And, and, you know, his feeling was that if your leg hadn't hit first, hmm. there's a good chance your, your head would not be still attached. Yeah. Um, so like, yeah, it was, it was a, pretty legit accident and uh yeah like i said your crew did an amazing job very lucky and good company yeah i definitely had the audience of every available person at the hospital when i was brought in to come check out the injuries you know part of that backup plan if something goes wrong with the ship mechanically or if the weather's wrong or if it's too close to dark or any of those we always have to have a backup plan and so where you're at it was kind of like is it going to be faster to go downhill and all the way out or mm -hmm. would it be faster to pull you back up to the top of the hill and back down the road uh, back to the top of the pass and so you're kind of right at that halfway point um, where it could have gone either way and uh, that's one of the kind of things we decide with the short haul is like is the ground transport going to make the injuries worse or create a lot more pain for the patient mm -hmm. And I think after the fact, with, with how close that was to your um, carotid artery there, I think it's, you know, going down on a longer ski out, potentially something could rub against it or, you know, nick it or something like that, a branch or anything like that. And so it's always a yeah, tough decision to make which one's going to be less risk because the, the helicopter does come with some inherent risks and short haul adds some of those as well. And so it's just kind of a big balance and judgment call. And luckily we have a, a group of people that can usually help make that decision together and make sure we don't miss something. I think too, that, um, <clears throat> when you left the hospital, you were having a hard time holding your own head up. Right. Mm -hmm. So we'd heard, and <clears throat> I think too, a longer ground extraction potentially been really hard for you to, you know, manage your, your head. And, and mm -hmm. um, so we definitely took that into account that like we were supporting you or Casey was supporting you as we were flying out and having, uh, 
having the ability to cut down that transport time, I think is was super beneficial in your case. It doesn't have to be that far off the road to create a complicated extraction, whether it's a, a vehicle off the side of the road or, you know, even if you just broke your leg right there, it would be take a little while to get to you, get you packaged up and get you back out of there. So you can quickly uh, find yourself in that one hour from definitive medical care where we kind of switch over to our wilderness protocols uh, without really being that far from, from a road itself. Yeah, it just feels so close and really in my head, I, you know, I never would have crossed my mind to think, well, what if I go down bad halfway down this and we can't get over to the road easily and, you know, someone, we need to be stabilized and all of those details. It uh, it just seems like a good lesson in how fast things can stack up so quick when you don't expect them to or in a place where you're a bit more comfortable. You know, and like you said, it, it kind of, everything from the time the accident happened until you got to the ambulance, everything kind of seemed to click into place pretty easily. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing how a little thing can throw a wrench in that pretty quick. And all of a sudden it goes from a 30 minute deal to four hours or six hours that you're. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think from when I went down to was being looked at at the hospital was definitely under two hours. I don't have maybe 90 minutes in total or less. Do you, I, I forget how long it was until from when you picked me up to when I'd first gone down, but yeah, pretty smooth. Very lucky. And yeah, I've, considered doing that solo before that run it didn't wind up happening for me but you know i know people do it's just the one of the best bang for your buck laps you can do on the pass so it's just that much more appealing um to yeah be maybe slightly less prepared you know i've I've been thinking back on my mindset and uh, decision making process right before i went down and i've been thinking about you know having some, you know, comfort in the quality of your company versus being, you know, resilient in my own right. If I was in the different position of having to save a friend, I'm not quite as experienced as a lot of my friends are with the logistics, medical side of of backcountry operations. So there's that, you know, there's, you never know what's on the other side of the two trees you want to jump through, (laughs) Uh, even if you think you can see. Yeah, for me, I've, you know, I've been skiing my whole life. I've designed my the rest of my life around skiing and being in the mountains. And so a friend of my father's a couple of years ago passed away on a green run at a mountain in Vermont, you know, as an ex pro ski racer, right? So that same type of, not to say I'm the same quality of skier, but just to have skied so much in an intense terrain, maybe not with the most self-preservation mindset, uh, certain days at the resort per se, and then to go down, you know, on a, on what would be a mellow, really friendly run uh, that's very accessible, close to the road, just feels like home. I think, you know, you just never know what the next turn's going to bring, really, is what I think about a lot from this. And I think, you know, just in this conversation, I've learned so much more about what goes into pulling someone out when they go down out there, what's required of you each and uh, the team that supports you and that whole network. And it seems like after I fell, everything really went about as well as it could have gone for me. You know, I did have a neck injury, but not a serious or permanent one. You know, hope to make some turns come end of March, April. You know, I totally obliterated my jaw, and they were able to rebuild it uh, without having to wire me shut, which I think would have been a much tougher recovery period than I have had because of just the lack of communication and uh, consumption ability that you have in that situation. So, 
just a lot of lucky breaks and just trying to learn from my own mishap in this in this case I think I definitely try to be someone who learns from others mistakes and that's a big reason why I wanted to come on and talk about this because uh, hopefully there's some tech takeaways for anyone listening but yeah just to uh, keep my head on a swivel and uh, be grateful to take some more runs down the line <laughs> kind of where I'm at these days uh, amid taking it really slowly and uh, trying to heal up proper thank you for listening to the fine line I'm Matt Hansen this podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, a vision of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation to reduce fatalities and serious injuries in the Jackson Hole backcountry. Find out more at backcountryzero.com.